0: Hello everybody, today's guest is Dr. Andrew Henry. Dr. Henry is a scholar of religion focusing on early Christianity and the religions of the late Roman Empire. You may know him from his very successful and popular YouTube channel, Religion for Breakfast. I brought uh, Andrew on to talk about magic in the ancient world and talk about how scholars think about magic how they define magic, how do they categorize it, and also we also talk about magic in the ancient world. So we try to have um, discourse between the different levels of magic, that is the internal understanding of magic from within a culture, and then the outside uh, discourse from the academic point of view. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Andrew, thank you for ha- uh, coming on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me fantastic so uh we today are going to be talking about magic in the ancient world and I would like to have this conversation on a different level so the level uh you know at the academic level as academics how to how do you study magic and then magic in the ancient world itself so there are different magics in a sense the academic understanding of magic and then the Uh, the ancients how they understood magic and their rhetoric and how they used it so I think uh, the best place to start with that is how do we define magic academically let's start there
1: sure so let's get into some potentially over-the-top jargon so academics use two terms they use the term etic and emic coming from the two terms phonetic and phonemic so when you study phonics it's like the study of linguistics, you know, how words sound, phonetics. Phoneme is the word for the actual sound. So when I say the word phoneme, there's an F, an O, an EM. So when we say etic and emic, we're talking about terms that are the study of, like a second order term that we try to use as a desc- descriptive category, religion, ritual, magic. And then there's the emic term, which is the term that the, the subject uses. So if someone says, hey, I study mag or I study like I practice magic, I'm a magician, they're using it emically because it's a term of as the subject, they're using it. So academics over the past few decades have been debating can we use magic as an etic term at all? Can we should we only use the indigenous terms that people used back in the Greco-Roman world? So we have terms like magia. Which we translate these days as magic. There's terms like pharmakia. There's all these different um, indigenous terms that describe different types of ritual practices. And they don't map perfectly onto the 21st century English word magic. And so there's always this slippage where we're trying to tie these things together. So I have been very careful, along with many of the scholars, it's not just me, to not map the word English or the english word magic onto those indigenous terms because they are used in many different ways they refer to things that we don't think we would refer to today as magic Mm -hmm. so a good example would be there's this greek philosopher in the roman period named celsus who calls jesus a a magos so like hey jesus you are a magician or a magi and (laughs) you know people today like oh well we could use many terms to describe jesus we could call him a prophet you know if, if you're a christian you'll call him the messiah so there's terms you can apply to him but as far as what celsus saw and who apparently read the gospels because he seems to be quoting directly from the gospels he read the gospels and saw magia yeah and the the reason that we know about celsus is because a christian writer named Origen was responding to celsus and saying hey celsus you're wrong here you're wrong here Kelsis is reading the exact same or Origin's reading the exact same gospels, and he doesn't see magia, he sees you know wonderful divine miracles. Uh, miracles. Yeah. Exactly. So, in many respects, magic and miracle are subjective terms. It's it's in the eye of the beholder. So to, to use the word magic emically as a scholar, I think is is very fraught because you're trying to apply it to indigenous terms that don't mean uh magic in the sense yeah. that we mean it today,
0: yes, and I, I I bring this up especially in this conversation um in the things that I get involved with um you know, this podcast it, there's a lot of intersectionality between the you know academic uh primary sources, me as a practitioner of of Greek religion, and then you know you have the uh, occult communities and witches today who who use these words they they read uh academic literature a lot of them and then there's the the word to use the slippage there's a lot of slippage between um the what is being produced in their books when they talk about magic they'll use the occult word magic with a with a K at the end that Alistair Crowley invented and that has to do a lot with you know oh using my will to create change in the world and there's more of a uh, this uh, occult spiritual has a different meaning it has its own meaning and what i have seen is there's this linkage between magic with a k to the uh magic the magia let's 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 skip the english term magic let's use the greek term like magia so magic with a k is the same or connected to magia and then they will use the the, the discourse from academics that talk about magic and link them all together and say it's the same thing and so I, I th- this is really important to understand the 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 emic and the etic and you know all these sorts of things so i think the next place we should go with that then is to really define where does what are the word where does the word magia come from you know so let's bring it down to now let's go to the primary sources
1: sure i'm going to do a little bit of a digression into how we could possibly use magic Ethically, before we get into that, okay. because there has there has been some move in recent years to try to use try to reclaim it as a term that scholars can use. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this work has been done by my dissertation advisor, David Frankfurter, who studies yeah. mostly Greco-Egyptian magic, but also magic in you know writ large, especially in early Christianity. He is much more comfortable using the word magic as an adjective rather than a uh, descriptive category of ritual, like a, like a noun that ritual is magic that ritual is magic that ritual is not magic he doesn't want Mm -hmm. to use it as that sort of category he uses it more as a heuristic qualifier Mm -hmm. that this speech act is magical insofar as it is it has agency it has potency it has efficacy the issue with that is then you can start applying that that qualifier to a lot of things that people do not consider magical so if you have you know you're in a you're you're plane is starting to crash and you're a christian you start praying to god like or you know please please god save this this airplane like you're you're saying a speech act that you're hoping has some potency you know are we going to call that magical or the liturgical uh process of you know transforming just mundane bread and wine into the body and blood of christ can we call that magical because the the speech act itself has some efficacy and potency. So I, I've i started to move in that direction too to use this term more as a qualifier uh, to speak of actions, rituals, material that, have, that aim to be efficacious, that aim to have some sort of potency and call it magical. But it's kind of a purposely transgressive use of the term because you do start applying it to things that people are like, oh, that's not magic. Mm-hmm. But it's a distinct turn away from trying to say, oh, magic is illegitimate ritual because so often it's used as a, an inverse an inverted religion oh you have yeah. good religion and then you have bad magic and that's yeah. just not what we see on the ground um so to, to get back to your initial question like what is magia i mean it's it's just the the or, originally is just what magi do so magi are were a you know class of priests in the persian empire uh they they presumably did priestly things you know sacrifices funeral processions And the term starts to show up in Greek literature, more ethnographically, Herodotus, Xenophon, they use the term to describe Persian priests. The Persian priests do some uncanny things, you know, they divination, dream interpretation, stuff like that. So it doesn't inherently mean magician, as, as we some have tried to define the term or translate the term today. But even in the 5th century BCE, I think the Derveni Papyrus, which is this really important archaeological discovery that has this uh, Greek, uh, a lot of like Orphic or Greek poetry, um, mentions uh, magi. And it seems to use the term to describe a type of uh, mystery cult initiate. That in, uh, this is coming from Fritz Graf, who has studied magic in the ancient world as well. He says that in Persian-occupied Ionia that there were Greeks who were in uh, these uh, initiation cults, the D- Dionysian mystery cults, who called themselves magi. So in that respect, it was kind of appropriating the term from the Persian usage and then applying it to an, a mystery cult initiate. So he says if <laughs> the, uh, if you're just a, a Greek living in a, in a city in Ionia and you came across someone who called himself a magi, a, a magos, you were probably just talking to someone who, who was in one of these mystery cults. Um, but it does seem to apply to itinerant, possibly freelance ritual specialists who who would do um, any number of rituals for you, whether it's divination, um, healing. Uh, so it didn't necessarily have a ne- negative connotation all the time. But even that early, you do have some literary references to magi in a more um, pejorative sense. So I believe in Sophocles' uh, King Oedipus uh Tiresias uh, Oedipus gets really mad at the seer Tiresias and calls him a a Magos and then has this whole string of insults he's a beggar he's a Magos he's yeah. a he's a charlatan so like at least in the mind of Sophocles this term could be easily lumped in with a bunch of other yeah pejorative words but does that mean sorcerer at the at that point we're not quite
0: sure yeah like potentially like you know um there's there are people who can do like divination legitimately but then there's people who could probably not do it so well and try to fake it so people have this understanding you got to be very careful with these sorts of things because there are a lot of people who don't know what they're doing or trying to trying to lie you know and scheme you and make money off of you so there is this like double-edged sword with the word at this point you know yeah and at least in in
1: the the next century, it does start to become more pejorative, and yep. this is why the indigenous terms gets kind of get kind of confusing because magos evolves over time. Yeah, and it evolves over time, but also sometimes gets elided. So magos and goes mm-hmm. are two terms that are often translated as magician or sorcerer or some sort of uncanny ritual specialist, and they seem to get elided because at least by the Roman period, there's a, a grammar from the second century CE, and the the author is tries to parse those terms. He's like, oh, you should use goes. It's the more proper attic term. Don't use magos. So in his mind in the second century CE, people were using them interchangeably.
0: Yeah. I remember yeah. seeing in Plutarch's writing, he he uses uh, goes a lot.
1: Like, yeah. And I think Celsus uses them basically interchangeably yeah. too. He says, Jesus does goetia, which is the you know spooky sorcery of the goes, but he's also a magos doing magia. So yeah. it, they become elided.
0: How, how did the ancients... How did the ancients really? What what really made a diff a difference between these two terms? Is it is is there something uh, normative, non normative? Is there something unacceptable, acceptable? What is the what is the the lines? How did the how did the Greeks and Romans start trying to set the boundaries between these terms? These terms, increasingly, especially into the Roman period, are
1: used as categories of illegitimate ritual. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, listeners can can automatically assume well, illegitimate is a subjective call. You know, Christian Christianity was illegitimate to the Romans. Uh, Manichaeism was illegitimate to the Romans as well. So, like, their Ill- illegitimacy comes down to power. Like, who's who's going to call that illegitimate? I, I use the analogy of a border. You know, the border between Canada and the United States is a is a social fact you know it doesn't exist on the ground Ten thousand bc the border between canada and the u.s doesn't matter it matters insofar as there's people there to enforce that border so if you try to cross the border right now without proper passport the canadian uh you know border guards will arrest you Ten thousand years ago that wouldn't happen so the border between magia and you know proper religio is really something that that's um defended by border cross or border guards and that often takes the form of religious authorities at least in the christian context you have another good example is john chrysostom who was the the bishop of antioch and he complains all the time about amulets in his homil- homilies like stop using amulets there's a homily where he says people in his congregation were wearing um, amulets with the the head of alexander the great on it and like as an amulet as a protective object and like, why would you trust your your health to a Greek king when you could trust the power of the real king, Jesus Christ? But then like the, the next homily, he's like, oh, next time you go past a demon infested area, make sure you do the sign of the cross. It's going to protect you. And in my mind, this is why I say there's no qualitative difference between religion and magic. On the ground, when you look at it just on like what is being done, they, they are they are actions, rituals done to protect yourself from harm whether it's crossing yourself or any number of very subtle gestures that people could do as protection, are we going to call that magic or are we going to call that proper religion? Uh, If it's, if it's, um, you know, a prayer that you, you say out loud versus a prayer that you write down on an amulet and you wear, I don't think there's a real difference between those two things besides the materiality of the amulet. And we can think of many proper material protective devices in, in Christianity as well. So,
0: like today like today for contemporary greek society for example we have the evil eye where people wear the eye and that is a like a contentious thing within you know society like is this proper religion you know this evil eye business um i remember telling my aunt cuz i i i, I Anytime I feel sick and I think I have the evil eye on me, I'll call an aunt and be like, "Can you remove it for me?" And you know, I was like, I, "I I like your magic. You do good magic." And she's like, "I don't do magic. I'm like, because I'll be like, you know, magia. Because we, you know, we use the word. I'm like, you know, my gun is magia. You do magic." And she goes, "No, no, this isn't magic. I'm doing something good. I'm I not, I'm not doing bad." So like today, still there's this concept of the magia is not good, and then like this is actually not magia. This is you know, um, um, prayer. You know, so this, this border, um, I guess it really comes down to the individual and what they align with in their mind as good and, and bad. Subject- yeah, exactly. It, it It's subjective. If, if you, you know, put me, cornered me and
1: said you must come up with a definition of magic, I would try to say something along the lines of a type of ritual that is, you know, small scale ritual, often done by an individual to address a, a social crisis of some sort, because it's usually something... Like healing or protection like protection from the evil eye a lot of these small-scale rituals we see in antiquity are our business rituals like hey i'm going to try to curse that person's business because he's stealing uh you know customers from my business um you know love eroticism marriage uh childbirth you think of how how dangerous childbirth was you know back in fifth century ce so so much of these small-scale rituals like apply this amulet this papyrus to the mother as she's giving birth. Like these are all crises to be addressed ritually. So, okay, let's call that magic. I would prefer not to, but when when scholars say, oh, this book is about magic, they're kind of forced to use that term because it's so popular. And the term is usually being applied to a book that's about these small scale rituals. That's not to say that magic can't be done communally and it can't be done on a civic level. There's a, a amazing uh, inscription from the city of Miletus that is a big block On the side of the theater in Miletus, this beautifully preserved Roman theater. And the block is basically an amulet for the entire city of Miletus. It says, inscribed in Greek, Archangels protect the city of Miletus. And then it has these like seven ovals carved into it with these names of the archangels, which basically look like amulets. So Mm. somebody carved this amulet. I believe this is 4th century. Um, It used to be dated to the 5th century CE, so well into the Christianized Roman Empire. Uh, The scholar Rangar Klein has tried to date it a little bit earlier because there's nothing explicitly Christian on the block. There's no crosses. There's no call to Jesus Christ, just as archangels. And at least by the 2nd or 3rd century, angels kind of were in... uh, greco-roman religion writ large it was not just judaism It was not just christianity we have plenty of uh, pagan um, inscriptions that mention Angoloi. so magic is usually individual doesn't need to be but if i had if i had my choice i wouldn't use the word magic to describe a type of ritual i would try to use much more targeted terms Mm -hmm. like a ritual for cursing a ritual for healing Mm -hmm. a ritual for divination for demonic P- possession or you know anti-possession that sounds a lot
0: better to me like get rid of magic because of the baggage that that, that comes with and then how people yeah. use it second-handedly you know what I mean again because I always keep in mind how do people who appropriate again like appropriate the scholarship in order to build religion so one of the things that I've been doing on my podcast recently because I had Sarah Johnston come on we talked about the um pagan appropriation of scholarship to build religion and so, you know, build, how they build pagan religions or witchcraft based off of scholarship, and when scholars use magic, then there's this blurring of, again, the blurring between scholarship understanding and magic. What does that mean? Ancient magia, modern magic with a K, This it gets really tangled, I think. And so I think if we, at the academic level, create a different word as more neutral it might help to clarify these things now these this is something that's not necessarily the priority of a scholar what a witch or a Pagan does but it is it is this ripple effect that that does come out of scholarship that I think scholars aren't aware of how the work is being used by practitioners so it's something that I'm I I think about and I like the idea of ritual you know these are these are ritual ritual actions that we are yeah. doing and whether it's religion or magic, you know, does that necessarily really matter, I guess, from our point of view, uh, you know, we can yeah. highlight how the p- people internally from those practices see it, you know, how do they label it, but to us, it's all rituals. Yeah, well, the, the
1: things that we call magic, the, the practices, so the rituals, the gestures, and the materials cut across what we also call religion. So yeah. I always ask, what is the job title? of a person who made an amulet in antiquity let's say the amulet is very fancy it's made out of bronze or silver or even lead where it's been Mm -hmm. constructed and crafted the the job title is not magician it's not goes. it's not magos it's probably your local bronze smith your local uh, artisan who somehow acquired the the lead and then made it for you it's probably the job title is probably Bishop or Priest or Rabbi in so many of the incantation bowls that we find in mesopotamia which are these these very simple bowls with incantations inscribed on the inside of the the bowl in a spiral fashion which they're often exorcistic in in like it meant to be an exorcistic uh, way to get demons out of your house they had they use quotations from the talmud They're, they're very literary so they probably were made in consultation with a rabbi so many of the the amulets that mention christian themes whether it's Jesus or mary or or various century archangels, use liturgical language. So who's you're living in a society with very low literacy rates and you're living in semi-rural mm-hmm. upper Egypt in the fifth century, who's the one or two literate people in your town? Well, it's probably the the monks or the priests living down the road in the in the monastery. So if monks are making these amulets and rabbis are making these incantation bowls, and you know, temple functionaries at the local temple to Demeter are making your curse tablets. Can we call these call this magic? This, these are all religious functionaries, yes. so that's why I kind of try to sidestep the term magic and say let's just use the category that more easily cuts across this so this supposed divide. Let's just say oh, this is a ritual for cursing. And once we say ritual for cursing, then that opens up everything. It's everything from the curse, the lead curse tablet, which people so quickly call magical. To, I mean, <laughs> I've seen exer, uh, uh, curse-like language from. Uh, uh, it's really interesting in the twenty. I think it was the twenty twenty election when uh, Donald Trump was trying to subvert the election. There was some pastor that was like basically saying a curse from the pulpit like bring in yeah. the archangels and yes. defend the election yes i remember that yeah it, i was like this, my, this, this is
0: read, magic i'm like, this, I at that. like, I'm like it, this is like magic right here
1: exactly it re- it read like a curse tablet it was just being spoken instead of written down on a curse yeah. tablet, as someone who has read a lot of ancient curse tablets so let's just say that was a ritual of cursing and then let's also call the lead curse tablet that you know curses the chariot racer you don't like and make his chariot explode yeah. also a ritual for cursing and let's just sidestep the term magic with the caveat or with the asterisk that I, I still want to use the adjective magical like let's let's be a little transgressive and say okay insofar as that that uh, uh, that curse said at the pulpit was meant to be efficacious let's say it was meant to be magical
0: yeah and it's trying to it's trying to bring about an effect through an invisible agent right mhm yeah 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 so, so my dissertation advisor,
1: uh, Dr. David Frankfurter, he, he was the editor of this big book called The Guide to the Study of Ancient Magic. It's very good really book. expensive. It's very bo- big, big, but yeah, it's like the ultimate guide, like hence the guide to the study of ancient magic. And in the opening chapter, he lays out kind of like five points, like how do you study ancient magic? And it's, first of all, it's strictly adhering to the indigenous vocabulary. So, don't gloss the word pharmakia, magia, goetia. Don't gloss that as magic. Very simply, if you're if you're translating the text, don't call it magic. Use the word pharmakia, use the word magia, knowing that these terms have different semantic usages depending on the context. So pharmakia used to mean just drugs. It's substance based. But the Apostle Paul uses pharmakia and he seems to use it as a synonym to magia and goitia. Like the Apostle Paul seems to assume it's just illegitimate ritual. Uh, Number two, that these words are often applied to folklore. So a, a person like Medea, um, so not not an actual social role. This is why I say, what's the the actual social job title of the person who does yeah. this or that? Uh, n- number three is that we can. It is strategically possible to translate some of these words with English words as long as we're paying attention to the folklore. So, sure, I, I will translate goace as sorcerer or wizard. Uh, just knowing, hey, I'm using a folk. I'm using a purposely folkloric term. To to try to translate, try to capture the purposely folkloric usage of that term in, let's say, Sophocles or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number four is that stuff that we call magical, like the magical papyri, which are all these texts from ancient Egypt, are not evidence for magic. They're evidence for temple functionaries doing rituals that they would not have called magia. So for us to immediately use a term like magia that was often used to call something illegitimate, just something that those Egyptian priests were not thinking of as illegitimate is kind of buying into that the the one side of this debate. So the so-called magical papyri, the cursed tablets, the amulets are not magic. They are not illegitimate ritual necessarily.
0: From the academic point of view, right? From the, the academics. Thing.
1: From the, from the academic part of view. Uh, obviously, like if you're Celsus and you're calling Jesus a yeah. magos, magia, yeah. he thought what Jesus was doing, uh, or so you know, supposed said to have done in the the Gospels is illegitimate and then origin was like no it's not illegitimate.
0: So. yeah as a as a contemporary practitioner of you know greek religion our our understanding that i was taught with magic with magia is in a nutshell the coercion of gods the the idea that you could you can coerce a spirit a, a them on a god to do your bidding that in of itself is magia and it's something to be avoided it's for us so that's like our internal understanding from that this in the conversation of things
1: yeah i've seen i've seen attempts to di- distinguish between religion and magic by saying magic is more selfish it's done by someone who feels like they have power themselves within them versus mm-hmm. religion which is more supplicatory oh god if it is your will please do this for me um it, it's assuming the power is outside of you and i i think that's bullshit like there's so many examples where you can find where the mm-hmm you know the just look at any late antique hagiography where the saint is just imbued with power and can just do so much even though technically that power is coming from mm-hmm. god like uh, again the qualitative what's the qualitative difference between uh, a magician who can just create thunderstorms and some uh hagiographical saint who can do the same like mm-hmm. the the difference between and then uh, then again think of how much uh ritual religious ritual that seems legitimate. That is done for selfish purposes. You know, anybody that says, "Hey, please help the Philadelphia Eagles beat the the Dallas yeah. Cowboys tomorrow," I'm like please, please. Oh, know, this yeah, is well, selfish. Religious. To me, it's
0: magic. Um, it's like you're mm-hmm. trying to get a specific outcome and trying to ap- appease a power to do it for you. Why would why would they do it? You know, from our point of view, it's like you know that is it's it's selfish. Like,
1: yeah. Well, from know. an academic perspective, mm-hmm, yeah, putting a value judgment of this ritual is is ethical this one's not ethical therefore yeah. that's the difference between magic and yeah. religion i yeah. think falls apart under scrutiny because you know scholars are generally trying not to do value yeah. uh, apply From value the scholar, judgment, yes so. again
0: like there's two two different conversations the practitioner conversation and then the academic uh conversation yeah
1: yeah exactly exactly and and yeah so i don't know enough about 20th 20th century and 21st century esotericism or occultism so when people say, Oh, I'm doing magic with a K or whatever. I see that as an emic word. Um, and I, I'm assuming that scholars of esotericism today are doing the same thing that scholars of antiquity are doing, trying to parse between the word English word, magic and the English word or the Greek word magia. And the emic and edic usages of magic with a K. Can we use that as scholars or is that only an emic term? Um, but I don't, I don't know enough about that field.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm a little, uh, not well versed on the academic discourse on magic with a K but um yeah so let's let's kind of talk about the the particulars like going back to the primary sources what are some of the earliest forms of what might be called my I I know there's this very famous um that's called drawing down the moon uh, can you speak on that that practice
1: uh not not enough to speak about it uh okay real real expertly since so i do more of the roman era stuff okay i do i do i do know the, the earliest usages seem to be sixth sixth to fifth centuries um i do believe that homer mentions mentions pharmakia but it's used more broadly as good pharmakia and bad pharmakia where you can apply drugs to a, to a wound for example yeah um, and that's happens. a term yeah like oint- ointments, and,
0: cre- and, then, and then you can poison someone so anything that's like a physical substance that you can you know ingest or apply medically like medicine
1: yeah yeah
0: and why would it be magical like that's the thing now here's that i think the follow question is why would that be seen as magical and i think it's because there's the, the unseen properties of these plants that people don't know it's like oh why does this plant help me this is magic you know they they someone who has special knowledge on plants and herbs to heal or to poison someone. And then, you know, there's probably uh, an incantation involved with that too. Like a prayer, you apply the ointment, you say a prayer and whatever. And then, oh, my my wound heal or I felt better. That's magic. You know what I mean? To some people.
1: Yeah. There's a, one of the earlier anthropologists, late 19th century, early 20th century, Dr- James Frazier basically says that magic is just failed science, where if you can explain it, It's science. If you can't explain it, it's magic. I, you know, that's, it's kind of an alluring definition because it's so simple. But when you think, another anthropologist a few decades later, Stanley Tambaya, says that we shouldn't really apply that sort of scientific standard to the magical ritual because people, because it does work insofar as it's working socially and psychologically. So I like to think of, all these erotic spells in Greco-Egyptian in the Greco-Egyptian context or like please make so-and-so fall in love with me and I, I try to imagine the social context okay you just you just did that spell now are you just going to sit back and wait for the spell to work I would say probably not you might feel empowered to then go and try to talk to the person that you're trying to to date so when we think of these rituals as augments to people's actions and not replacements to people's actions, it makes more sense from our 21st century, you know, scientific mindset, you know, why would someone do this if it didn't work? Oh, they just must've been mistaken or tricked. And I would say, well, they were still, they were still operating (laughs) with their usual agency. So same with like a, like a curse tablet where, you know, somebody.
0: Okay. All these business curse tablets, where you're trying to curse your your rival business. You you're... can you can you tell us about curse tablets now? Since we we we've we've been talking about curse tablets a lot, but I, I don't think we've actually talked about how what they are, how they work. You know, what's the the, the nuts and bolts of that topic? So should, maybe we should explain that a little bit.
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, curse tablets are great. They are a a type of ritual that were very, very popular from roughly 500 BC to roughly 500 CE. And there's a few centuries on two ends of those, those parameters, uh, seem to has started in the Greek world. I think one of the earliest examples is from the Greek colonies in Sicily. And they're generally pieces of lead that you would flatten and then write out a curse against somebody, you know, I curse so-and-so for stealing my jacket. May the gods bring down, uh, you know, destruction upon them these curse uh, curse formula are usually very evocative <laughs> very like melt their lungs and yeah. their liver and melt their eyes make their feet fall off. Yeah.
0: yeah it's very descriptive it's they're they're interesting to read like may i remember reading one i think it was from england mm-hmm. from roman period like may may he not be able to sit or sleep or eat or drink you know not find rest like basically may, yeah. may you suffer like in all sorts of ways until exactly. you give me back that jacket Really well, like I'm using the jacket
1: <laughs> example because there's um, yeah. there's a huge cache of these curse tablets that were discovered at a Roman bath in in England, in what is now called Bath England.
0: Yeah, I think that's yeah. the one there I was There was a sanctuary too. to yeah. this
1: syncretized goddess, Sulis Minerva. So, it's like Sulis, Celtic goddess, Minerva, Greek goddess, or Greco-Roman goddess kind of alighted together to Sulis Minerva. And at this sanctuary, there was this pool and apparently people would come and toss curse tablets into this pool to try to to fix like i said a social crisis and so many of them are about petty theft you know somebody stole something from me please bring this back to me or oftentimes it's almost like a prayer of justice you know bring bring the person who stole it back to the sanctuary and may they face justice and again this Ma- so-called magic cutting across what we would call religion. This is an official sanctuary, and apparently there was a section, it was it was right next to the temple. You have the actual temple, then you have the temple forecourt where the sacrifices were done, and just off to the side is the, the, the pool where people toss their curse tablets. So it's all done out in the open, right there in the sanctuary, probably facilitated by the temple functionaries. Here, let me help you write that curse tablet and throw it into, let me give you the right formula. Um, but many of them are against uh, people who stole hooded cloaks. You know, they stole my cloak. <laughs> Bring it back. And I just think I yeah. find that so interesting.
0: And I think in a time when there's no police necessarily, there's no mm-hmm. police, there's no one there to investigate. There's no detectives. There's no law enforcement to like be like, oh, complain. I, I lost my coat. Can you go find the person? Like, you know, detective work. So I guess, you know, without recourse for anything else, you, you got to go to magic. And, and yeah. hopefully maybe that, that, a spirit or a God will help you.
1: That's why I see these rituals as agency augmented augmentation strategies. So we live in a world that's constantly trying to thwart our agency. We want to get a promotion, but so-and-so got the promotion instead. It's like, we we want to do something. I want to do this, but I got sick or I got injured. So you you live in a world where your agency is thwarted because there's no good judicial system. There's no police force. So if somebody steals your hooded cloak. What do you do? Well, this, this is one strategy you can turn to. Um, so... So curse tablets. The the Latin word is defixiones. It's from the Latin word defigure, which means you know to fix, uh, in the sense of to transfix something. And very often these curse tablets are found rolled up and then pierced with a nail. And so you're like literally fixing the the spell the spell with a with a nail, and this is thought to activate it in some sense. Uh, the Greek term is more uh, to, to mean to tie down, uh, to bind. So they're sometimes called binding spells. And again, you can kind of think of the you know, the evocative sense of okay, I'm binding this person, I'm tying them up with cords. Um, usually, lead uh, lead it, w- it was cheap, it was easy to find, it's easy to to work with. You know, it's easy to flatten into a to a writing surface. Uh, actually, one of my videos on my YouTube channel, I actually bought sheets of lead on Amazon, which I didn't realize you could do, just to see what yes, it was like. Can, so yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. wanted to like okay how easy is it oh, to yeah, write yeah. On one of
0: your one of your earliest videos was uh how to do a curse tablet yeah <laughs> I think it, it's probably got a lot of views by people who actually probably want to try and do it <laughs> yeah maybe
1: I mean it yeah it's it's old it's terrible production quality but it was it was a lot of fun we did a
0: great job honestly you did a great job I should
1: do an update I've always wanted to do a sequel with the uh, incantation bowls just by a clay, clay bowl mm-hmm. but but yeah working with light I was wearing a gloves because I, I wasn't sure how lead poisoning works <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's very easy you just take a nail and and, and scratch a, a spell onto the the lead
0: it's quite yeah. easy but we and have I other examples in, in HBO, hmm? no go ahead uh, i think in the hbo show rome they actually show a scene of somebody uh um, yeah. doing a, a, a lead cursed tablet so as far
1: that. as i know it's the only media depiction of a cursed tablet and in the show she's like like really going at yeah. it with like in this yeah. angry sense which I'm sure was done, and we we sometimes don't think about the emotional uh, Mm -hmm. uh, situation, the emotional state of the person when they're making these spells. At the same time, though, I think that might be exaggerating because I can easily see this being – almost like an assembly process, assembly line process where you show up to the temple. Mm-hmm. Hey, someone stole my cloak. Can you help me? And you're not necessarily yeah. there yelling and scrape, yeah. scraping at the, yeah. the unless spell. you're
0: doing it yourself, I guess, if you have yeah. the means to, to write and you're like, I'm going to take the lead and go home and do it. And then you're just like, let it out. You know?
1: Yeah. And so it's often lead, And a lot of these curse tablets draw an analogy between the materiality and the spell. So they'll say something like, just as this lead is cold and dark, make so and so cold and dark, you know, fill them with coldness. So the 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 heaviness, the the darkness of the the metal seem to be mm-hmm. important. But a lot of the spells, especially we find curse spells on papyrus in Egypt. There's a really interesting example found in Cyprus with basically quartz. It's like a crystal with curse tablets on them, yeah. which I think are really interesting. So it's not always lead, oh, but, but lead seems to have been the most common from you know 500 BC all the way through the Roman period so it, it was this very stable ritual for so long why it kind of fizzled out I don't know but it, it seems to uh, people stop doing it sometime in the uh, late maybe, antique period. Maybe
0: the, maybe the acquisition of lead became really suspicious I guess as Christianity yeah
1: like, I, I suspect Christianity you know? has something to do with it um yeah because you know it, never, I, away. it probably
0: never went away I think it probably just changed forms I have to look into um in terms of contemporary cursing practices like in the region today like what do people do today because they do do things they are stuff that they do but they don't use lead because i think it's just maybe it's just
1: yeah i don't and like i said using that that example from the 2020 election like (laughs) curses are still done people still curse yeah just the form the form of a lead tablet seems to have disappeared but their prayers for justice they're, there's different categories there's uh yeah. like i said commercial curses there's eroticism curses and then there's like the theatrical athletic curses we have so many curses cursing um runners or chariot teams and they're just really they're really interesting to read like you know destroy the horses make the guy fall off his chariot like and some of them have been discovered on racetracks so there's mm-hmm. at least one example I'm thinking of from the, the Hippodrome in Antioch that was discovered buried under the, the starting gate. So you can just, again, try to reconstruct the social context. Some guy snuck out there at night and buried this cursed tablet under the starting gate of the green team. And like, may, may the green team's chariot explode. Uh, it's just really, really interesting.
0: Can you talk about this, like how the ancients probably thought this worked? Um, how does um, the idea of sympathy play into this? Now let's let's talk about like more of that. Like what is what's going on in their minds? What do they think? How does this actually work? What is the system? What is the structure of this?
1: Yeah, I I I've got to admit I'm not so much into ancient philosophy, so this is going to okay. be leaving my expertise. I I it's I think maybe Plotinus, but some some late ish Roman philosopher talks about um sympathy where if you pull on a thread mm-hmm. i think that the actual analogy it, it, is it like comes
0: from, it comes from stoicism i, I think that the you find it largely in stoicism so i think it it did blend it later into with um platonism too yeah but, you, uh, you, whatever, you, you, whatever you know about it let, you know talk let's talk about it
1: yeah that's that's a uh, I, I, I this is me drawing <laughs> from okay. a deep memory from early grad school but the the analogy was like strings where if you pull mm-hmm. on one string that string is connected to another part of the universe mm-hmm. and then okay. that and you can affect it and that's where we get this term sympathy where it's like you're pulling on one string to affect some some other mm-hmm. connection um but honestly that's the extent of my when you, when you study like the the archaeology and the anthropology you're, you're kind of nose to the grindstone mm-hmm. looking at small-scale rituals that people do and you're not so much reading the the philosophy that might have been underpinning it
0: okay cool um now i love talking about late antiquity and you know polemics and stuff like that uh do you have anything you might want to share in terms of uh, rhetorical um situations of magic's uh, involvement and in religion and uh christian uh hellenic uh, polemics sure i mean my favorite example is the acts of
1: uh i think it's called the acts of paul and peter and it's this, it's quite early, it's second or third century. It's a story of, you know, Paul and Peter in front of the evil emperor Nero. And they have this showdown with Simon the Magus, you know, this this figure who appears in the book of Acts, who later becomes, and, and actually he's a little bit ambiguous of a character. He's not that evil. But in later centuries, he, he, he becomes like this arch heretic in Christian discourse. And in this Acts of Paul and Peter, um, there's it's almost like it reads like a comic book. It's the closest we get to like a Marvel comic book in, in early Christian literature where they have this battle of this, this showman's battle between who's who has the most powerful supernatural ability. And so P- uh, Peter does these, these acts of miraculous wonders in front of Nero. And then Simon responds with his own miracles. Um, at one point, Simon or Peter like challenges him to, to summon angels and he summons like these dog-like creatures and Peter's like, ha, look at that. He can only summon these, these, these degenerate dog-like creatures instead of actual angels. So like there's this, this, uh, understanding of a power level that, that Peter has the real connection to true miraculous power and whatever power Simon has is somehow debased or degenerate. And the story ends, um, very climactically where simon says hey i can fly so they build this tower he goes on top of the tower and he just starts flying (laughs) and then every and nero and all the crowd is like aha look at that simon is the true powerful figure peter and paul you you guys have nothing on that and then peter straight up kills simon he he like says this I, i forget the exact language but he's like bring him bring him down and uh, I think Paul is there with tears in his eyes Like it's, it's this very emotional scene. And then Simon just drops to the ground and, you know, uh, dies from blunt force trauma, presumably. And so this is like the, the justification of the story. It's the moral of the story. You can, you can imagine this was read to, to a Christian audience like, well, Simon finally failed. Peter showed to have, was shown to have the true power, the miraculous power given to him by God. And, I, I see this as a great example of e- even in antiquity, there was this parsing between illegitimate ritual and r- legitimate ritual. And I think on the ground, there's not much difference between a miracle wonder worker like Peter and a miracle wonder worker like Simon. But the story is trying to say, oh, this guy's power comes from God. This guy's power comes from demons. So there's kind of a behind the scenes. What, what's the source of your power? One's demonic. Yeah. One's not demonic. Uh, and it's yeah. in the same way that today people try to parse between religion and magic
0: yes and there's um Apollonius of Tiana he was um I think contemporary to all the to this like it's this late antique you know wonder worker you know like a Pythagorean Platonist and he was actually in 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 the story of his life he wanted to be initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries and was denied by the Hierophant because the Hierophant saw him as a gois, as, as a as a magician and then uh, Apollonius had to like defend himself and be like no no I'm not and this and that and he had to convince the hierophant to let him in and which he succeeds in doing and does get initiated but it, it's interesting that again this 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 sense of what are you doing that doesn't seem right you know the, the boundaries that are being uh created
1: yeah i think i think so Apollonius of Tiana was yeah this thought to be this this ritual specialist wonder worker there's also Apuleius uh, Apuleius who you might have been mm-hmm. referencing instead but Apuleius He gets put on trial for magic. Mm -hmm. I think he's a Mm -hmm. second century, possibly third century philosopher, very smarmy, satirist kind of guy. Um, He has a text called the Apologia, where he gives his own defense in court. And again, trying to reconstruct the social context here. So uh, apparently he married a, a widow uh her her very rich husband died and she has all this money and then apuleius gets married to this woman
0: i've heard of this story too yeah so tell
1: and the the family's very pissed off the family's like this guy's obviously trying to steal our money so the family brings him to court and what's the charge they bring against him well they bring the charge of of magic against him and the the implication being the only way that this woman would have got with got with this guy is he must have used some sort of erotic curse spell to, to get her to fall for him so they bring him to to court and it's a very interesting defense and again trying he he makes a etymological linguistic argument in the same way that scholars today try to say okay what do we mean by magic what do we mean by religion and he's like you have charged me of doing magia well the, the 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 magi were were priestly people they were trying to connect with the gods how can you say this is a bad thing you're basically saying i am connected to the gods um and then they they accuse him of like acquiring weird, uh, like a fish of some sort. Like you went to the market and you bought this weird fish. You obviously bought it for some sort of spell making needs. And he's like, I'm just a curious guy. I'm basically a scientist. Like, how can you, how can you say this is a bad thing? Presumably he won the court, the, the case, because as far as we know, he wasn't executed or put in jail or something from, because of this. But it's interesting, the rhetorical moves he tries to make defending himself. And he leans into this word, trying to reclaim the word, uh uh magus and trying to reclaim the word uh magia
0: wow it's so interesting this time period where you know these words are being used and the 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 arguments I feel like it's more prevalent later in the late antique period than in previous periods like what do you think there's anything societal that's happening like what is going on like think about today is it like I try to find par- I love finding parallels between the ancient world and today and like trying to connect, you know, because I human behavior, is human behavior is, you know, it's just a different stage. That's why I look at it. Like satanic panic today. Like we had the satanic panic, like, oh, that's people, you know, you say, oh, that's the satanism. You're, you're doing something bad. This is this and that. And like, do you think maybe like in the ancient world, like this was, they were going through a panic of some sort or it, uh, Christianity tying into this, the rise of Christianity and, you know, all these uh, societal changes. What are your thoughts? I mean that's a really good question the the, the thing is we're
1: talking about such huge timescales here so when yeah. we talk about the yeah, the a, satanic you know. panic you know that was the 80s and I think we're living yeah. through a new and panic it's coming back again uh, yeah I think we're living through like a, a trans panic or a LGBTQ yeah. panics like so, yeah. so I mean but we're talking on the time scale of 30 years here the 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 term magia just becoming more and more pejorative we're talking the case of centuries I, I'm sure Christianity has something to do with it. We get an increasingly polarized understanding of demons versus angels, so the the spiritual world, I think, becomes more polarized. At least in the among the literati, I think on the ground for your your random person living in rural Syria they probably didn't care so much. So like, Oh, I'll, I'll go to the Basilica on Sundays and get the Eucharist. Cause Oh yeah, that bread and wine, that's going to help my, my sick baby. If I like put that, that Holy oil on my baby, but I'm also going to go visit the ancestral sacred grove where the ancestors live or where some daemon lives. Um, but I do think we start seeing this more polarized where you have angels, you have, you have God, you have Jesus, and then you have everything else are demons. Um, you you have these Christian authors calling the Greek never denying that the Greek gods, gods don't exist. They just say, oh, they're just types of demons. So that that might be part of part of it, where the the spiritual world becomes more polarized. Other aspects of the spirit world, though, remain the same, which is very locative. You know, angels live in certain places; they have certain domains. We see this in in Jewish magical practice in late antiquity, where you have an angel that presides over the 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 rivers or an angel that presides over the forests and you can supplicate these different beings um, on a more local level. Um, whether or not that has something to do with, you know, a moral panic, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I can imagine, I mean, the the historian Ramsey McMullen makes the argument that Christianity grew so fast because they you had so many of these itinerant preachers claiming to have power over spirits. And that has a lot of currency when you're trying to bring people over to your side. Um, it's very, it's a very Protestant and very romantic idea to say, oh, they were just all these crowds of people just fell in love with the beautiful message of the gospel. When it's more likely that some priest or monk showed up to town and say, hey, I can handle your problems. You you're sick. Well, it's probably a demon inside you. Let me fix that for you. And it was on this very local ritual specialist level that Christianity grew um, again, I don't know if I call it a moral panic, but I would say that as a as a social movement that happened, where the the power of the holy man became very important, and you have all these so- stories of you know Simeon the Stylite, who was living on top of this pillar. And if you visit Simeon and then take some of the the dust or dirt or material from around his pillar, you can turn them into little tokens that can heal you of sickness. So we have all these little Simeon tokens with a little picture of Simeon's head on it presumably made out of material from his pillar that that becomes that's what's important if you're living in rural syria and you want to heal your your sickness visit the local heal, uh, healer or the local holy man um so that i think that's a major social move throughout mm. late antiquity
0: okay cool now i'm just curious of how did you really get into this? How did you, did you wake up one day and say, Hey, I want to be a scholar of religion. Like how did you, what was that path to that?
1: Yeah. I, I came into religious studies a little sideways. I was a history major and my senior project in, in college was on amulets. Cause I kind of stumbled into the subject every, I wanted to do something different. And when you think of You know, a a final project in ancient history, people might focus on Julius Caesar or Cicero, like these big figures. And I was like, what's the weirdest thing I can find? And I kind of stumbled into this. And I kind of rode that wave for the next decade, (laughs) where I just studied the small scale rituals that I found weird and exotic. So I was from the start kind of exoticizing them in a way that today I'm like, oh, we shouldn't exoticize these rituals. But at the time, I was like, ooh, this is weird and exotic. So my intention was to get into a history PhD program. And so I applied to mostly history programs. But, you know, this this guy named David Frankfurter keeps coming up in this research. He seems to be a big guy in relig- ancient, late antique magic. And, oh, but he's in this thing called a religious studies department. What is that? Like, I did not even really fully understand what religious studies was <laughs> when I was applying to PhD programs. Got into the program, decided to go there because of the dissertation advisor. So for anybody that wants to go to a PhD program, a good advisor will make your PhD experience a lot more fun. Like they can go to they'll they support you. You're gonna the person that's gonna be reading all your research. So I'm I'm lucky that I had such a good connection there. Uh but it was a religious studies department. So I took all these classes on religious studies theory, which at the time I was kind of leery about. I was like, oh, I would rather take a class on ancient economics or ancient philosophy. Why do I have to take a class on what is ritual? What is what is religion? What what does it mean when we say the word sacred? What What's a, what's a sacred text versus, versus a mundane text? But I fell in love with it. Like these, in my mind, it was kind of intellectual self-defense. We use these terms all the time without really thinking about it. We use the word magic, we use the word sacred, we call something a temple and that thing a sacred grove. And we don't really know what we mean by these categories until you really dig into these categories. And that's what religious studies theory is all about. So I fell in love with it. And now I'm at the point I'd much rather read a book on like you know, 21st century Haitian voodoo than I would on ancient economics. Like I'm fully into the religious studies world. And my my field of expertise just happens to be late Roman religious studies, but I'm interested in religion writ large. And it's that interest that kind of led me into starting the YouTube channel. Where it's like, hey, I'd love to just have a YouTube channel that's just about religion writ large, which is a huge topic. Some people ask me, like, oh, aren't aren't you going to run out of topics someday? And I'm like, I could <laughs>
0: no, not really, not with with religion. Not It'll with keep religion, keep I could.
1: That that'd be like saying, would you run out of a, a topics so on a channel about science? I, I, I could publish a video every single day for the rest of my life, and I would not run out of topics under the umbrella of religion, because even within a single tradition like Hinduism. Well, you can have a video on every single Hindu god. And then you can have a video on a single Hindu god. And how were they interpreted in 500 BC as opposed to 500 CE? And like, you know, you could just ex- explode it so much that, yeah. So this topic is just this endless
0: uh, goldmine of of topics. You can just... Yeah. And you've built a very successful uh, platform. I, re- I remember, you know, uh, following your channel right like from the beginning, I think. And now you're like, where are you at right now with like your subscriber count and, Appro- approaching
1: and... seven hundred thousand subscribers?" So it is the...
0: amazing. yeah, that's no, amazing. And it shows it shows really people are interested really interested in the subject because you know it is in our society like you know you're t- you poli- polite conversations not to talk about religion, but people are interested in learning what this thing is that's so pervasive in in our society and it, it impacts our lives and it, it look at look at a society right now where it's in you know, it's impacting laws, they're trying to impact laws based on you know people's you know religion and it's like well what what is this thing that is trying to control our our lives like you know and and people want to learn more
1: it's kind of annoying because yeah the phrase is it's don't talk about politics or religion in polite society and but everybody talks about politics and politics youtube channels are a dime a dozen religious studies youtube channels there's like five of us if that so like (laughs) but you're right people are interested in the subject the subject religion remains extremely important to to society in the sense of relevant to society uh do you want to understand you know a a global issue like i don't know try to study india without knowing a thing about hinduism or sikhism do you want to understand the middle east well learn something about islam or or coptic christianity in egypt so whether you're in international relations whether you're in economics whether you're into history or social sociology If you don't know a thing or two about religion, you're not going to really fully understand these subjects. So this is one of the interesting things about religious studies. It just cuts across all these different fields from neuroscience to psychology to history to economics. And this is partially why we're never going to run out of subjects on the topic because there's there's just so much there. And and you're totally right. Do you want to understand U.S. politics? Do you want to understand how Donald Trump was elected in 2016? Well, it's because of American Christianity. So let's study a thing or two about American Christianity. So it, it remains a vitally relevant field of study to this day, even though people say, "Oh, religion is disappearing." It's like, well, certain societies, especially in Western Europe, are are secularizing. But even in that term we can then problematize. You know, I just published a video on manifesting this, this practice where you can kind of bring about things in your lives if you think about it enough. And, it, and that I would call a religious spiritual practice, even though it seems to be operating in a more secular capitalistic sense. So, yeah, religion, it's, it's not like it's, it's not a bad decision to start studying religion now because you're thinking it's going to disappear in 10 or 20 years. It's it's here to stay for the the foreseeable future, and it's a way to really understand society on a, on, a, on a deeper level
0: yeah definitely all right and um one question I always like to try to ask people is you know when you want to recharge your batteries and kind of you know unplug from your discipline you know what do you what do you do what's your like what's a hobby or something that really gives you gives you life
1: yeah I'm super into board games these days if you asked me ten years ago about video games, but like I just don't have the the time to sit down. Like there's the new Zelda games out, so I have been playing a lot more video games in the last ten years, <laughs> in just the past few months. Um But yeah, I'd say board games. I I've, I play this game called Gloomhaven all the time, which is a little more like a dungeon crawler role playing game. Um I just played. A, and
0: you've done videos, I think, on Zelda, right? You did a, you did a re- religion of Zelda. I, I think? did
1: I did like a ultimate guide to the like my own pet theory about the religion yeah. of of zelda if you were transported into the land of hyrule to like study it as an anthropologist and i just recently published a video on the demonology of hyrule because there's so many demon kings in the the legend of oh, zelda cool. series like what 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 does that mean to, to say there's a demon king so i ha- kind of have this mm-hmm. theory of demonology um I, I haven't done videos on board games and religion but i, I could do that too
0: but yeah so, yeah, there's, there's so many potentials some possibilities
1: yeah Yeah, the religion and pop culture. But again, that's not really unplugging. So (laughs) unplugging it, sitting down and playing a three-hour game of Terraforming Mars where I'm only thinking about the strategy of how to win. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm not thinking about religious studies then.
0: Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you for your time. This was a great conversation. I appreciate um, you coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me.